All right, take a Bible and open to 2 Kings chapter 23. We're going to start reading there in just a few moments. 2 Kings 23, we're going to look at chapter 23 and chapter 24 uh, on the front end of our time tonight. The aim of this particular lesson, the aim of the series has been to talk about the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, We did not talk about Saul or David or Solomon. We're talking about the the kings of the two nations after they split. The aim of this uh, lesson is to put sort of a Uh, a bow on top of all of it. We are going to talk about the last four, the final four kings of Israel and Judah, but uh, in some ways this is sort of a a summary concluding lesson. One of the things I know has been redundant, and I told Corey on the front end, we're going to do this every week, and we're going to say the same basic thing every week, and they're going to get tired of hearing it, but about the time they get tired of hearing it, some of it's going to start to sink in and take root in their minds and their hearts. So I want to put this story in the context of a bigger story. Sometimes we struggle with that when we study the Old Testament. We read these isolated stories as if they're not connected to the one big story of the Bible. And so I want to start off talking about Israel's leaders. The nation comes into existence when Moses leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness. Moses is the first leader. In some ways, he's the great leader. He's the lawgiver. He's a judge. He functions like a king. He leads them in battles. Uh, He does all sorts of things for the people. He's followed by Joshua. Moses does not get to go into the promised land, but Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and they fight in Jericho, and they fight in the north, and they fight in the south, and they conquer most of the land. They establish themselves in the promised land. Then comes the judges, which is a total train wreck. The judges are terrible people. They're flawed human beings. God uses them to deliver Israel from oppression from foreign pagan kings, but there is very little spiritual light in the book of Judges. When you read the book of Judges, you don't find a lot of heroes. You just find a lot of mess. The last judge was probably the greatest and certainly of the ones we know of the godliest it was Samuel. Samuel led the people, he spoke God's word to the people, he functioned as sort of a prophet priest of sorts and after he died or on the heels of his ministry ending he anoints Saul, he anoints David, when David dies Solomon becomes king and after Solomon this united kingdom of Israel splits into two. Jeroboam splits off with the southern or the northern tribes and they become the nation of Israel. Rehoboam hangs on, the line of David hangs on to the tribe of Judah and likely some of Benjamin and Simeon and they become the nation of Judah in the south. And you've got these two kingdoms existing side by side, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So let me just summarize where we've been with Israel because we're coming to the end of this study tonight. These are the 19 kings of Israel in total. Now, none of these kings were good. What I've done is I've put in sort of the turquoise color the four that we talked about. We didn't talk about all of these kings, but these are the four kings of Israel that we talked about. Jeroboam the first, Ahab, Jehu, and Hosea. We talked about Hosea mostly because he was last. He's really not that noteworthy other than the fact that he's last We talked about the first guy. You feel like you need to talk about the last guy. So we bookended uh, the kings of Israel in that way. Of any of these kings, the one who was 
closest to being godly was Jehu. Now that phrase, being close to godly, makes absolutely no sense. Okay? There is a great baseball player, a legend named Frank Robinson, who said, close don't count in baseball. It only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I had a friend in Kentucky who used to quote that proverb all the time, and he would say, close only counts in horseshoes, hand grenades, and thermonuclear weapons. So close counts in some things. When it comes to following God, it doesn't count. And I'm, I'm amazed when I look at some of the resources and some of the lists in study Bibles, they sort of put Jehu in italics or in quotes or in a different color, and they say, well, he was kind of good. Well, if you remember, Jehu got rid of all the pagan idols and all the pagan idolatry, and he killed a bunch of people. He was a very violent man, but he persisted in worshiping the calves that Jeroboam had set up. He said, I'm worshiping the Lord, but he wanted to worship the Lord with these idols in Bethel and in Dan. So he was not good. He was not godly. All of these kings of Israel, all 19 wicked, wicked, idolatrous kings. Here's the kings of Judah. There were 20 kings of Judah. Now, this one is color-coded for good and bad, okay? Red is bad, and turquoise is good. And you notice that there's a cue down here. We didn't talk about Athaliah. Athaliah was the one queen in this line, and there was an interesting sort of intermarriage, intermingling of the lines with Israel and Judah about this time. We passed over a lot of these, uh, these monarchs. The ones in turquoise are the good ones. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. I put Amaziah and Jotham in italics because the text basically says they were good, but they weren't as good as they could have been. They worshiped the Lord, they served him, they didn't chase after pagan deities, but they kind of let a bunch of nonsense continue in the nation, and they didn't have a lot of zeal for the Lord in leading the people to worship the Lord. So I put those guys in italics. Now, we've come down to Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Now, in my thought originally, I'm looking at this list, and I say, okay, we talked about Hosea, who was last. So we've got to talk about the last one. So I start looking at Zedekiah. I say, okay, we're going to talk about Zedekiah. He's going to be the last one. And I look at him and I think about him and I say, yeah, isn't it? I don't want to do just him. So I start thinking about one of these other guys in the last four. And I say, eh, they're all kind of pitiful. So what I decided in the spirit of college basketball, being back and the Jayhawks winning last night, they won in Madison Square Garden. They beat the evil Michigan State Spartans, which is a great win to start the season. 1-0, going for an undefeated season, going all the way for the final four. So that's what we're talking about tonight, the final four. These are the last four kings of Judah, and these are the guys that we're going to try to zero in on tonight as we think about them individually and also the end of the nation. So let me start with this. Uh, the last book I read, I just finished it uh, a couple of days ago, is a book called Our Culture, What's Left of It, The Mandarins and the Masses by a guy named Theodore Dalrymple. That is not a picture of Dalrymple on the left. That is a picture of Dalrymple on the right. Dalrymple is a trained psychiatrist. He lives in the UK. He spent his career working at an indigent hospital 
in the UK, part-time, and part-time in a prison. And so he is dealing with some of the roughest, some of the most economically disadvantaged people uh, in his area, and he's a psychiatrist. And he's written all sorts of books about the field of psychiatry uh, and psychology and how it's impacted popular culture uh, in the West, in the UK, and in the United States. This particular book is not my favorite that he's written, but it was really interesting. It's basically a collection of essays that he wrote, uh, seemed like from between 2000 and 2010-ish. And one of those essays kept popping into my mind as I was thinking about these final four kings of Judah. He tells this story, really the essay is sort of about uh, communism and socialism and sort of a totalitarian approach to economics and how that doesn't really work. He told the story that in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, he went to Cuba and he spent time in Havana, the capital. And he just talked about what he saw walking through the streets of Havana. And he said, the people were amazing. The people were so friendly. They were so positive. Uh, they were so nice. Uh, they were pleasant to be around. But he said, everywhere you looked, the city was just crumbling. And he said, it was a, a, a terrible thing to see. It was a tragic thing to see because he said, as you walk the streets of Havana, you could picture in your mind what it used to look like. Now, I've sort of given you the, the big panoramic view, and you look at it on the screen, and the sky's blue, and there's some color in there, and you say, oh, it looks beautiful. But what he's saying is you could walk the streets, and you could see the architecture, and you could see the styles of the buildings, and you could see the detail that had once been there. And he said, in your mind, you could picture what this city looked like at one point in time. But he said, in the present... When you walked through the streets, all you saw was crumbling building after crumbling building and paint peeling off this building and that building and rust on this building and on that building and this was closed and this was condemned and the cars that once were so beautiful and bright and shiny, uh, many of them were run down and beat down. And the point of this essay was to say this is sort of the economic consequence over time of this approach to government and a planned economy. But what he's saying is, at one point in time, this was a beautiful city. It was glorious. It was amazing. But now, just sort of a shell of its former self. That's kind of the feel you get when you read these last few chapters and you look at these last four kings. You've come all the way through the story, you remember David, you remember Solomon. You remember some of the high points with Asa and Jehoshaphat and Uzziah. You remember Hezekiah. You remember this last recent revival with Josiah that Corey taught about last week. You remember some glorious, great, good, godly things. And then you get to this and you just sort of feel like you're walking through an abandoned neighborhood. It's just a shell of the kingdom that it once was. So what I'd like us to do is just read a pretty lengthy portion of the Bible. And I realize that when you're listening to a sermon and someone reads a long passage of scripture, for many of you, this is when you check your phone on the side. Yes, I know, when your face glows blue down on the thing, you're looking at Instagram or Facebook. I know what you're doing, you're not fooling me. You don't have to hold it up and show me. Or this is when you sort of zone out or whatever. So this is what I'm challenging you to do, open your Bible, 2 Kings 23, 
Don't read slower than me. Don't read faster than me. Stay with me in the text, and let's read this story. I'm going to be honest with you about two things as we read from 2 Kings 23 and 24. It's just honesty. This is a really hard part of the story to make sense of for a couple of reasons. Number one, all the kings in this section have two names. So you read about them here, they have different names than they have other places, and I'll just be honest with you, I get confused really easily with all these guys and their names, and I just get lost, and sometimes I need to pull my, my visual flow chart out to see who's in what order and what's going on. It's also hard because when you get to this part of the storyline in the Bible, all of the different pieces of this story are spread all throughout the Old Testament. So we're going to look at some of those things tonight. There's some in the major prophets. There's some in the minor prophets. There's some in Daniel. There's some in uh, Esther. There's some in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's places all over, not just grouped together right in one spot. And so it can be confusing when you're reading through the Bible to make sense of this. So follow along. 2 Kings, we're going to begin in chapter 23, verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah. Corey taught about Josiah last week. And all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and he came to Egypt and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabida, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites, bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now, the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. 
And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, we've met her before, was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king Babylon. That's not the end of the story, but we're going to stop right there for now. Now, I'm going to go through these quickly. We read all that, and we're going to march through this uh, with a little bit of speed. Jehoahaz II, also known as Shalom, was 23 years old when he took the throne. His mother was Hamatal. He reigned three months, whopping three months in Jerusalem. If you're trying to remember who was the first Jehoahaz in Judah, there was a Jehoahaz in Israel, but you're thinking, ah, he put those 20 up, I have a photographic memory, there was not a Jehoahaz in Judah. The answer is that there was an Ahaz in Judah, and Ahaz is the diminutive form, the short form of Jehoahaz, Jeho-Ahaz. It's the same name, and so he's the second. In the book of Jeremiah, he's called Shalom, so he goes by both of these names, Jehoahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was deposed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Basically, Pharaoh marched into town, put him in chains, hauled him to Egypt. He died in exile in Egypt. Next of the final four, Eliakim, a.k.a. Jehoiakim, was 25 years old when he took the throne. His mother was Zabida, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim was basically set up as a puppet king. The Egyptians took the previous king, Jehoahaz II, off the throne, and they said, we would like you, Jehoiakim, also known as Eliakim, to be the king. 
but he was taken into exile and eventually he died in Babylon. File this away for your brain. We're going to come back to this in a minute. When he was taken away from Jerusalem and Judah to Babylon, there were numerous young Jewish men who were taken with him. Among them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We'll circle back to that in a minute. Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Moving on, Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, was 18 years old when he took the throne. His mother was Nehushta, and he reigned three months, and I added the 10 days just to be fair to him. One reference says three months. The other reference says three months and 10 days. So I want to be fair. And 10 days in Jerusalem. Jehoiakim did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was deposed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. File this away in your brain. When Nebuchadnezzar came and deposed Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, there was a Jew named Mordecai who was living in Judah, who was taken out of the promised land, taken into exile, and he took with him his niece, Hadassah, and they eventually ended up in a place called Susa. Just file that away in your brain. Jehoiakim and Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, this guy basically, he just gave up. Right? This is the guy that said, we surrender, white flag, take me, take my mom, take my family, take my servants, take everybody. We'll come back and talk about him later. We're not done with Je- Jehoiakim. Last, Madaniah, also known as Zedekiah, was 21 years old when he took the throne. His mother was Hamatal, so we saw her previously with Jehoahaz. This is one of the other sons of Josiah. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was also, we'll talk about this in a minute, deposed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now look, that's very repetitious. And it would not have been hard for me to summarize all four of those and say, look, nobody sat on the throne very long. Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar basically swapped people out whenever they wanted to, and they were all wicked guys. And I could have saved you a few blanks. We could have made the note shorter. We could have saved a tree and made this a half page. But I want you to feel what it's like to walk through the streets of Havana and see crumbling building after crumbling building after crumbling building after crumbling building. Like this is the end of the book of Judges, which we've referenced several times as we've set the context for these kings. You go into the book of Judges, the people do what's wrong, they rebel against the Lord, God sends someone to oppress them, they cry out, they don't really repent much, but they cry out because they're miserable and God has compassion on them and he sends a judge or a deliverer and sometimes they serve the Lord during the lifetime of that judge But when you get to the end of the book, the cycle breaks down. This cycle of sin, oppression, cry out to the Lord, God sends a judge, the people sort of serve the Lord at least with lip service, and then it all starts over. The cycle breaks down at the end of the book because they quit crying out to the Lord and there is absolutely no repentance. Instead, the book of Judges tells you, you know what, there was no king in those days. Everybody just did what they wanted to do. That's the end of the book of Judges. Book of Judges says that twice in the final section. There was no king to lead 
or to control or to restrain the people and everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And that last portion of the book of Judges is horrific. When you're reading it in your devotions, you're just saying, when can I get to Ruth? I gotta get to Ruth. This is terrible. This is not appropriate for like young children reading. There's horrific stuff that happens at the end of that book. That's sort of the feel of walking through a neighborhood that once was glorious, but that's just a shell of its former self. And that's the feel here at the end of Judah. This was a nation with so much promise. In the days of Solomon, people were coming from other continents, from other parts of the world, to see what Solomon was doing. Other monarchs walked into Solomon's presence and their breath was taken away at the splendor. And now we just get stuck in three months, 11 years, did what was evil. This king took him off the throne and put someone else on the throne. I I wanted you to read it out loud. I know it's long. And I wanted to go through those points just so you feel basically how pitiful this is. How horrific this is. It's not the the end of the story quite yet. There's a man named Gedaliah. I want you to know about Gedaliah. We referenced when we went through the book of Jeremiah. Gedaliah was installed as the governor of Judah. But everyone viewed him as a collaborator. Sort of as a traitor. They basically said, oh, you're in with the Babylonians. If you're in with them, we don't trust you. And so it didn't take long and he was assassinated. Then all the people who assassinated him ran off to Egypt. We'll come back to that in a minute as well. So after that, I just want you to feel the weight of what we're reading. We started with Saul, David, Solomon. We have this glorious kingdom. Then it split. But you still got Judah. You got the line of David that is at times faithful to the Lord. You have some great revivals. You have some great leadership. You have uh, people who want to teach the law in Judah. And now, with these final four rotating through the throne and then going into exile, Israel lives under Babylonian rule. Then they're going to live under Persian rule. Then they're going to live under Greek rule. Then they're going to live under Roman rule. And then they're going to basically cease to exist as a nation. Now, there's times after this where they have people read about this in the New Testament, who are called King, King Herod. That's sort of like a wink and a grin, King Herod, (laughs) little K King, puppet King, the kind of king that just does whatever Caesar tells him to do. He's not a real king in any way, shape, or form. This is the end of it. This is the end of it. No more kings after this. So what do we learn? from the lives and the reigns of the final four kings of Judah. Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, sin always has consequences. We've talked about this every week. It's especially poignant here at the end to remind ourselves that sin always has consequences. I'd like you to take your Bible and I'd like you to turn to the left to the book of Deuteronomy and find chapter 28. God had given his people advance warning about the specific consequences of their sin if they were to get into the promised land and be unfaithful to him and worship idols. God told them 
when Moses was still around, before Joshua ever led the conquest, God told them, listen, if you go in to the land and you are going in, and if you do what I'm telling you to do, I will bless you and I'll be with you. I'll bless you. But if you go into the land, and you are going to go in, when you get into the land, if you rebel against me, I'm going to pour out discipline and judgment and curses on you. And what we just read about was prophesied and promised in the book of Deuteronomy. So we'll just look at a few examples of this. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. This is in the section of the curses for disobedience. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. You want to worship idols? Well, I got a plan. I'm going to kick you out of my land, and I'm going to send you someplace you've never been before, and you can go worship idols. That's what you want to do? I'll help you do it. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 28. Look down in verse 52. It says, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted. You didn't trust in God. Trusted in your walls. They're going to come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. Look what he says. We'll read a longer section starting in verse 64. Deuteronomy 28, 64. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning, you'll say, if only it were evening. And at evening, you'll say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey I promised you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer God warned them all the way back when Moses was around. If you disobey, there will be a consequence. You and I ought to marvel at the mercy and the patience and the kindness of God that for about 250 years he sent prophets to Israel begging them to repent. For about 300 years he sent prophets to Judah begging them to repent, knowing what the consequence would be. You understand, most of what the prophet said was not like wildly predicting the future. Most of what the prophets had to say to the nation of Israel and Judah comes straight out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. They're just preaching this passage over and over and over again. Look, this is what God said. Have you read Deuteronomy 28? Do you remember the curses that he promised? Your sin will have a consequence. And God was so merciful and so patient that the people just eventually decided, that is not going to be a consequence. 
Remember in Jeremiah's day? We have the temple. We have the temple. We have the temple. It was a chant, like a political chant. We have the temple. We have the temple. Jeremiah showed up and said, knock it off with that stuff. Deuteronomy 28, God promised there would be a consequence for your sin. It was horrific. You can read about it in Jeremiah. You can read about it in Lamentations. Look, if you will, at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, just so you get a feel of what was happening. 2 Chronicles 36, just two verses. Verse 15 and 16 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people, his wicked, stubborn, rebellious people. He had compassion on them. God is not a hothead. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he had compassion on these wicked, stubborn, stiff-necked people. So he sent persistently. Not just he sent messengers. He sent persistently by his messengers. He had compassion on them and on his dwelling place. Verse 16. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. We saw that when we went through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah would stand up and preach to the people and say, God says, do this. And they would laugh at Jeremiah. They would slander Jeremiah. And they would look him in the eyes and say, we're going to do the exact opposite. We will not listen to you. God warned them persistently. You want to get a flavor for the horror of this? Look at 2 Kings We talked about this when we went through the book of Jeremiah. It's part of Jeremiah's story. 2 Kings chapter 25, starting in verse 6. This is when the last king, Zedekiah, has rebelled. 2 Kings 25, 6. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. He's trying to run away. They pursued him and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. You can go back and do the math. We just talked about Zedekiah. He was 21 years old when he took the throne. He reigned for 11 years. He's a 32-year-old man. You can make your own guess about how old his sons are. They took the sons of Zedekiah. They slaughtered them before his eyes. And then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And they bound him in chains and they took him to Babylon. Jump down to verse 9. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Nebuchadnezzar burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and the houses of Jerusalem. Set a bonfire to the temple. Every great house he burned down. All the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaderan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And you read that and you say, well, that's nice. Some of the poor people finally got their own farm. The poor people got their own farm so they could grow grapes and make wine 
so that the Babylonians could come back and say, give us the wine. That's why they were left. This is a horrific, horrific scene. You read this, you read it in Jeremiah, you read it in Lamentations. Lamentations goes into great detail about what it was like to live through these final days. Jeremiah goes into great detail about these final days. It's a reminder, sin always has consequences. God promised these people centuries before this is what will happen. They hardened their hearts and this is exactly what happened. So there's consequences for sin. There's also God's grace in this story. So let's pivot and talk about God's grace. God's grace is seen in the surprising legacy of Josiah's revival. Corey talked about Josiah last week. Uh, Lucas, would you put up, I think it's slide number four, the kings of Judah. Put up the kings of Judah one more time. So you see Josiah in blues, the last good king. You've got these four knuckleheads at the end. You go back to Ammon, and before Ammon was a king named Manasseh. Corey preached on Manasseh also. And one of the things Corey told you when he talked about Manasseh is that in the days of Manasseh, it was so bad, it was so horrific that God said, that's it, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. God fully and finally made the decision in Manasseh's reign that he was going to send these people into exile. The die was cast. The decision had been made. All the ballots had been counted. God said, this is it. It's one to zero. I'm sending you into exile. But he didn't do it yet. He waited. Ammon was on the throne. And there was these four goobers at the end. But before these last four, you had Josiah. And Corey talked last week about Josiah in this great, massive, national revival that he led. Corey said a couple of things that are true. He said, on the surface of it, it was a very external revival. Because as soon as he died, they just dialed it all back and went back to what they were doing before. There's a lot of just sort of, hey, this is what we're doing. You better not get out of line. So the people sort of towed the line for a while, but there was no internal heart change. That happens in a lot of, quote, revivals. But do you know what else happens in those, quote, revivals? Some people really do have a heart change. Some people really do have a, a deepening of their faith and a strengthening of their faith. Some people like Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 1. Nothing revolutionary I want you to see in these passages other than that this was all happening during the name, uh, during the times of these last four kings. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach the literature, teach them, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's basically an indoctrination program. That's not just we want you to learn our nursery rhymes. That's we want to teach you our scriptures and our worldview. 
He gave them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, the wine the king drank. Where did he get that wine? Well, from the poor people back in Judah who suddenly had farms, grow grapes, ferment it, bottle it up. We'll be back to get it. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were, okay, Landon's parentheses. Among these were a bunch of people who probably had phony baloney conversions during Josiah's reforms. People who got very spiritual and faithful to Yahweh when Josiah was on the throne, but then forgot about it as soon as Josiah was off the throne. There was a lot of that. But there was also a guy named Daniel, and a guy named Hananiah, and a guy named Mishael, and a guy named Azariah, all from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. How was it that those four young Jewish men were able to make it through the indoctrination process and still be faithful to the one true God? It's because they had been discipled and taught and their lives had been changed during the reign of Josiah. God did not owe Judah one more godly king. Put the list up, number four, slide number four. All the way back in Manasseh, God said, that's it, you're going. But knowing that they were going, he said, you're gonna need one more good king in here. I'm gonna pick a little boy, a child, and he's gonna lead a revival. And there's gonna be people like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who are going to grow strong in the Lord because I'm going to need some guys in Babylon who can stand up for the truth and who can speak truth to a pagan king and who can get the people ready to repent when it's time to come home. Who did that? Daniel did that. Where did Daniel learn about repentance? Josiah and his revival. Look at the book of Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you get to Job, you went too far. Esther chapter 2. It says, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. So now we're past the Babylonians. The Persians are in charge. Things move fast. Susa's the capital. It's the citadel. There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And it just so happens he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. How in the world did God get Esther ready to save God's people in a most desperate situation. Well, he put her under the care of Mordecai. How did God get Mordecai ready to take care of Hadassah and to equip her to stand in a most difficult situation? Well, he sent somebody named Josiah, a little boy, to be the king of Judah when he had already decided to send them into exile. He graciously sent one more godly king and one more revival because God knew, hey, I'm going to need some people not just in Babylon, but I'm going to need some people in Persia. Because there's going to be a guy in Persia in a couple hundred years, a couple of decades, I should say, 
He's going to try to commit genocide against God's people. How am I going to save them? I don't need an army. I just need one girl. And where is her faith going to be strengthened and solidified? You can add up the numbers. Mordecai, Hadassah, they lived through Josiah's reforms. They lived through that revival. God used it in their lives. One more. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So Jeremiah starts his ministry with the good, godly King Josiah on the throne. Revival is breaking out all over the land. Verse 3, it, that's the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came also in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, till the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Jeremiah cut his teeth preaching during a time of revival. The revival of Josiah's day, this finding the book of the law under the reign of Josiah had a formative impact on Jeremiah who would spend the rest of his very long life basically preaching from the book of the law, Deuteronomy 28. God's going to kick you out of here. That's basically all Jeremiah said for his whole prophetic career. Exactly what Deuteronomy 28 says. Where did he learn that? Well, there was a priest named Hilkiah. It might have been Jeremiah's dad. It's unlikely, but it's possible that it was actually Jeremiah's dad, Hilkiah, that went into the temple and found the book of the law and brought it out and read it to the king, taught Jeremiah, established him in the word. You remember what happened to Jeremiah at the end of his life? We talked about this when we went through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, I want to stay here after the city fell. And Nebuchadnezzar gave him the option, do you want to go to Babylon or do you want to stay in Jerusalem? He let him choose. And Jeremiah said, I want to stay here. And then remember, Gedaliah was on the throne and Gedaliah got assassinated and everybody got panicky and they said, we're going to Egypt. And they literally just picked Jeremiah up, old man, and said, you're coming with us. And they kidnapped him and took him to Egypt and he dies in Egypt. But for the rest of his days in Egypt, he talks to the people about the book, the word of God, the things that he learned in the days of Josiah. And you know, history shows us that a lot of those Jews who went to Egypt never went home. They stayed in Egypt. And you know, some of those Jews, their descendants who stayed in Egypt, a couple hundred years later, there were a couple of refugees who left the area around Bethlehem, young couple, newlyweds, new baby. They were running because there was a king, air quotes, king, trying to kill their baby. And they ran away to Egypt. And odds are they went to Egypt and they found some people who were like them and believed like them. And they weren't just completely and totally alone. How in the world did they end up in Egypt 
more than likely living with their own people who believed the book, who knew the book, who trusted God's law, goes all the way back to God's grace in Josiah's day. One last godly king, one more revival, find the book of the law, teach it throughout the land. Most of it was superficial. Most of the conversions were phony baloney, flash in the pan. Daniel's wasn't. Hananiah's wasn't. Mishael's wasn't. Azariah's wasn't. Mordecai's wasn't. Hadassah's wasn't. Jeremiah's wasn't. One last revival to get a core of people ready to help God's people endure through the exile. That's God's grace. One more example. God's grace is seen in the surprising elevation of Jehoiakim. Look at 2 Kings 25. If we define God's grace as his unmerited favor, well, this is it. 2 Kings 25. We're talking about Jehoiakim. So you go back to your notes. You say, which one was he? I'm confused. I am too. Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, was 18 years old when he took the throne. His mother was Nehushta. He reigned three months and 10 days. Don't forget the 10 days. Three months and 10 days, he did what was evil. This is the guy who gave up, waved the white flag, said, we, we don't want to fight, just take us. Do whatever you want to do. So they took him, put him in prison. Look how the story ends in 2 Kings 25, verse 27. In the 37th year of exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him. He gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Why did God do that to a wicked king? It's just a picture of his grace. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, why did he elevate this man who'd been in prison for 37 years? God moved his heart. God just said, I'm going to put my king, pagan, godless, wicked, I'm going to put him out of prison, and I'm going to put him in the king's court. It's God's grace to Jehoiakim. One more, God's grace is seen in the surprising edict of Cyrus. This is the end of Second Chronicles. This is how the story ends in the later account, Second Chronicles 36. You think it's surprising that they took him out of prison, Jehoiakim? Look at this. 2 Chronicles 36, 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Babylonians are gone, Persians are here. The word of the Lord by the mouth, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, notice that's Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. May Yahweh, your God, be with you and let him go up. That's God's grace. He says, exile's over. It's time to go home. 
You've been here for 70 years. I'm sending you back. And the king of Persia is going to pay for it. And that temple that got burned down when Nebuchadnezzar was there, you're going to need a new one. So the king of Persia is going to pay for it. And I'm going to raise up people like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They're going to build you a temple. They're going to rebuild the wall. They're going to teach you the law. And Cyrus, these Persian kings, are going to send you back and they're going to pay for the whole thing. That's God's grace to his people. One more. This time, really one more. God's grace is seen in the surprising birth of Jesus, the king. This is what all these stories really lead up to. I know we've read a lot tonight, but this is our last Wednesday night in this series. It's our last Wednesday night before Christmas. And we've been slogging through a bunch of names. So let's do it one more time. Okay, Matthew chapter 1 says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, or Asa. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, short for Jehoahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azer. Azer, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not 
until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And in the very next chapter, which you can read on your own, a bunch of pagan kings show up looking for a king. God sent him. He did not just send him to tear down the high places. And he did not just send him to get rid of the Baal statues. And he did not just send him to burn the bones of the priests on their pagan altars. And he did not just send him to say, hey, don't forget the Passover. You've only done it like twice in your whole national history. You're supposed to do it every year. You've done it twice. He sent him to save his people from their sins. That's the one thing that all these other kings couldn't do for the nation and certainly even couldn't do for themselves is really fully and finally deal with their sin problem. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a virgin so that he would grow up and live a life of perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, perfectly fulfilling the law, that he would die on a cross We talked about this in Colossians with our record of debt nailed to the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, taking the judgment for our sins, being buried and three days later being raised. And once he was raised, being exalted to the throne of heaven where he belongs as the king. And it's not the end of the story. That's just one story within the story. Because the big story is he's coming back. And when he comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of the Father, King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray.